The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are grateful that you have gathered us here. In all of your awesome, mighty glory, you are lowly and humble and tender and kind, and you draw us together like the children that we are to give us words of instruction, wisdom, kindness, and grace. Thank you. And so we pray now, teach. We send out your word by your spirit and press it into our hearts and teach so we would be grown up and matured. Raise us up. Raise us up in love with correction if needed, with encouragement and exhortation where needed, but raise us up like a father to your children. Make this passage clear today and draw from it honor for your name and produce from it a strengthened, deepened church. Thank you, Lord. That's what we trust you to do this morning. Take your word and teach. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. To be called narrow-minded is a stinging insult these days. A weapon, in fact, used to dismiss and even to ostracize those who disagree with the majority opinion. You're you're so narrow-minded. Because what the majority opinion is, is a wide and broad Inclusivity. That's the buzzword today. It's like the virtue to be inclusive. Never mind the logic involved in this. Our world right now declares that whatever anybody wants, whatever anybody thinks, whatever anybody feels is just fine. Everything goes. The world's ethos right now is very anti-narrow. So, when we hear Jesus call people to a narrow walk, as he does in our passage today, before we even know exactly what he means, that's uncomfortable. It's, it's kind of a, an alert. It's very countercultural. It's very challenging. And yet it is very clear right here in Matthew chapter 7. Over the last months, as we've been working our way through this extended teaching of Jesus that we've come to call the Sermon on the Mount, we've heard a lot of challenging stuff from him. He said many things that are hard. And last week, as he concluded the main body of this sermon here in verses 7 to 12, he exhorted us to call out to God constantly, asking him, asking him, asking him for the grace that we need to help us. He's he spent a long time laying out things that are very challenging, and then he says... Challenging, Uh uh-huh, yeah, but hopeful because there's help available. Ask him, seek for it, knock and he'll give. He'll give you the gracious help that you need. Help is available. Ask. Finishing there now, Jesus turns to press upon all of his listeners his concluding sobering comments pointing out to everyone, everyone who's listening, that judgment from God is coming on all the earth. Judgment according to what he was just teaching. Universal, eternal 
divine judgment is coming. Verses 13, where we start today, on down through the end of this sermon, are all constantly on that theme. Structurally speaking, 13 and 14, which we'll look at today in the first part, spend most of our time there. Structurally speaking, that sets up the dichotomy. Two gates, two ways, two destinies, and all the world is in one place or the other. Two gates, two ways, two destinies, just like there are two trees from which you can feed yourself, 15 to 20, and two lifestyles and two types of builders. Everybody in the world is in one place or the other, and they are not both acceptable. They are not both fine. The way of God, the, the way of life is narrow. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning, beginning this morning and then in the next week also. So let me read the passage, and then I'll draw out two observations from it. As I said, we'll spend more of our time in 13 and 14 kind of setting up the whole structure of the, of the final section of this sermon. Beginning in verse 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew 7. Two observations. Here's the first. We must walk the narrow way that leads to heaven. The other way leads to hell. We must walk the narrow way that leads to heaven. The other way, the only other way, leads to hell. Verses 13 and 14 present a picture to us, two gates in front of us, and that's something it would have been probably a gate in a fence or a gate maybe in a wall. And there's two gates here, and beyond the gate, each one leads to a path, to a walkway, and then those paths lead on and on, on in the distance to two different destinies, two different destinations. So that's the picture. They, two setups here, and they are quite different one from the other. One of the gates, Jesus says, is narrow. It's a small gate, a tight fit, maybe just one person's shoulder width gap. Maybe think of it like a slot canyon even, where you've got to take off your pack and to like turn sideways to kind of slide through it. It's a small, tight fit, a narrow gate. In verse 14, on past that gate, the path that leads on from it is hard. He uses a different word there that, that also means narrow, but with the connotation of something that was squeezed so as to make it narrow. Think of like a tube of toothpaste where you, you, you press it really hard and you squeeze it down, and now it's very thin. This is a hard-pressed, troubled, pressured and squeezed, narrow walkway. A hard road. A 
hard road. That, in the end, leads to life. He's not talking about then life along the path. He's talking about the final destination where, the, where it leads to life at the end. So notice the structure there. And to use some language that we've used a few times recently, last month and a half or so, he's talking about a gate and a path, and he's pointing ahead to a promised future grace. Life at the end of the path. He's talking about a promised future grace. He's talking about heaven. That's what he means. Glory. But few people are walking this path. On the other hand, there's also the opposite. The other gate is wide, not a slot canyon, but a double-wide garage door. And the path that leads on from it is freshly paved, multi-lane highway, smooth and easy. It's a beautiful road. You can roll down it so quickly and so seamlessly. And when you see the contrast here of the, of the hard versus the easy, you realize he's not talking about the, the difficulties of life that, that everybody faces. He's not talking about hardship or easy, like, like disease or loss of job or something like that. He's talking about spiritual realities here. So he means an easy, a, a smooth path that, that is free of spiritual struggle, free of attack, free of persecution for Jesus' sake. Remember, that's where the sermon began. This is a spiritually smooth path. They enjoy all this life, no troubles. And you'll have a lot of company there. Many, many people find that gate and walk that path through life. It's by far the way of the world. And as such, it feels very natural. It's appealing. I mean, the sheer numbers of folks on the road point out that everybody likes this way. This, is, this has a wide and natural draw to it. People headed down this path. It's what they're after. Why, why wouldn't a person go this way? Who, who would want to be narrow? Who likes that? So, What's the problem with the wide gate and the easy path? Well, middle verse 13, it leads to destruction. Which is not bankruptcy or a car accident destruction. I deal in these truths all the time. I think about them all the time. And when I read this sentence in a commentary, it kind of made me sit up. He's talking about the eternal damnation of human beings. We don't use the word damnation that much. But it's a swear word because it's talking about, it's referring to an awful reality that's right here. Many, many people experiencing forever the omnipotent wrath of the holy God. Eternal damnation. The wide and easy, smooth paved road leads to hell. And the path is full, bumper-to-bumper traffic. That's the problem with the wide way. 
a narrow way and a wide way, two ways to walk through life. And Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Walk the narrow way. That's the one you want. Why? Because eternal destiny is at stake. It's clear and vivid imagery. And over the years, of course, many people like John Bunyan have, have done a lot with this imagery. I mean, many of us have read The Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, you can, you can see it here. You can feel it. It's, it's front of mind for many of us who read these kinds of things. But set aside the imagery for a moment. What is he getting at? What's he talking about? These paths and these gates and these ways. At its core, this, this passage has no new teaching in it. This is, this is actually after he's actually closed off the sermon. He's just pressing it home. So he's not bringing anything new here. In fact, he's actually just urging us with, with a sober calling to respond to his teaching. To respond to everything that he already said. The, the way of life that he's just been teaching us here in this Sermon on the Mount. Narrow and difficult to embrace and difficult to enter this, this hard-pressed walk this righteous Christian life that he just taught over the course of several chapters here. Hear that, he says, believe that, and do it. This has to be walked out. It's a path to be walked out, not just like intellectually acknowledged, I get it. It's a path to be walked, to live, to do. It will not be popular. It is very exclusive. It is not inclusive. It is exclusive. It is very demanding. It is very centered on me, on Jesus as king, he says. Very clear on the demand to follow me as Lord and leader. No one else. To trust me. Not even yourself, your own feelings. Certainly not the popular opinion of everybody who's on the other path. But to hear and believe and trust and follow me. And to even get into this in the first place, you've got to die to yourself. It's just, it's hard to like squeeze by. You've got to set aside everything. You've got to take off the pack and take off all the extraneous, all the stuff that sticks out, and you've got to get narrow. You've got to die to yourself to get into this in the first place. You can't fit in carrying all the stuff of the world. Lay it all aside and come. It is very narrow that way. It is calling you to forsake the world and to seek treasure in another one. To live for the future and to take his word for about how we are to do that. To take his word for what the Old Testament law and prophets mean. To reject all other interpretations and all other theories and all ideas and to hear only his call on you, only his contrary teachings and his perspective and his authority. It is an incredibly exclusive, not an inclusive, an incredibly exclusive path. There is one voice to hear, his. One Lord to follow, him. One King, Jesus. Narrow. Of course, as we've talked about this over the months, we've included more about how is it that you come to him and how is it that you follow him, more than what he says here because he can't properly yet talk about the cross and the resurrection and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because those things haven't happened yet at the time of the Sermon on the Mount. 
So he hints at things here, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Call out to God and ask, and he'll give to you a righteousness that you need. He hints at things that we've added in to clarify. Here's what it means to come to him. Here's what it means to follow him. Here's what it means to be empowered to walk this out. We've, we've mentioned all those things, not explicitly here in this sermon, but the call, the basic call of come to me only and walk with me only is here and clear. This is what must happen. And he calls all who hear this to turn away from the way of the world and come to him. And a number of us probably, we hear this, are thinking of people come to mind, people that you know and love who need to hear this. For sure. Think of them. Pray for them. Tell them about this, those people that come to mind. But actually, he's talking to you. Remember the whole setup of the Sermon on the Mount. From the very beginning, this is directed at people who already identify themselves as his disciples. The very beginning, and we talked about this almost every week, we've talked about this, how Jesus said there's a huge, massive crowd of people around, and he saw that and then drew his disciples near and began to teach them. Now, for sure, this is the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the open air, it's on the side of a hill, and the other crowds are still around, and in fact, they will show up in verse 28. They're listening to all this, and all this is highly instructive to all the crowds. They get all that. But the immediate audience are the people who have already said, unlike all of them, I'm in. I'm one of yours. I'm a disciple. They raised their hands. He drew them near. They came, they came up close so they could hear him really well, and they sat down right in front of him. That's who he's talking to most immediately. Everybody else here, sure, sure. But the primary audience is the group of people who already said, unlike them, I'm one of your followers. So why say this to them? Enter by the narrow gate. Walk this path, not that one. Why say this to them? To, to the other people who maybe come to our minds who aren't believers, we hear that. Uh, that makes sense. But why say it to those who've already raised their hands? Well, think carefully about this. They raised their hands before he preached the Sermon on the Mount. They raised their hands before he said any of this about my people are poor in spirit. Mourn over their own sin. My people are meek and humbled and broken over how small and weak and displeasing to God they are and how unable they are to fix any of that by themselves. That's my people. And so my people see the log in their own eyes as the biggest problem there is. Not what's going on in the world. The log in their own eyes is the biggest problem they see. That's my people. And they are concerned about that and they attend to that and they hunger and thirst for God to have mercy on them and to give them a righteousness they need that they cannot produce themselves. That they, they long to be people like that. 
They long to be right before God in their hearts first. They, they see their own lusts, not just their, their non-action, but they see what's going on inside of them. They say, like, oh, God, help me. This is the narrow gate. They long for that, and they know they have no chance of making themselves like that, so they cry out to God for the grace that they need. They call out to God for a right standing. They call out to God for the Spirit to fill them and move them into walking in this narrow way. They want to be God-pleasing. They want to be self-denying. They want to be other-serving. They want to live the other-loving life, even when it costs them dearly. They long for the kingdom that is to come, not a power and a kingdom here. This is what the law of God requires. My people see that, and they say, please help me. The gate is narrow, 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 and the way is narrow and hard. Come. He hadn't said any of that yet, and surely there are people there listening. What? What was that? The Messiah, sir, is here to sort out the Romans and return us and our people to glory like we deserve. I don't know what all that mumbo-jumbo was about turn the other cheek and, and when the soldier requires you to carry stuff, go an extra mile. Whatever, I'm out. And surely there were people there. What? Is that about about the biggest problem being me? The Messiah, sir, when he comes, well, this is where chapter 4 started. He will pour out great power and he will heal. He will chase out all diseases. He will cast out all the demons. He will sort out what's right and wrong in this world right now. And he will tell us very clearly what God requires and he will reward those of us who do it and he will judge them ones who won't. That's the Messiah, sir. So I don't know what all that was about meek and mourning over me, but I'm out. And probably other people who maybe weren't quite as indignant but were thoroughly confused because that is not what they thought the program was about as they heard him preach. In other words, people who thought they were in the kingdom already needed to be shown what the kingdom actually was what it is, what the kingdom values actually are, what the kingdom's king is actually like. And then called here at the end to die to self and enter by the narrow gate, which they just heard, don't turn away, don't turn away. This is a hard, narrow teaching, but it's the only way that leads to the kingdom. And the other way there is, everybody else is on that, look right over there, that place is packed. But I promise you, you don't want to go there. This is the way that leads to life. Trust me. Do you trust me? And come and follow. They needed that line in the sand drawn for them to clarify. They needed the narrow gate pointed out. And so do we. Every one of us. We need that too. Because people of God, even today, we are constantly bumping into a new awareness every day of what it means to follow Jesus. It's as if, metaphorically speaking, 
although it wouldn't hurt to do this literally, to take the Sermon on the Mount and put it in front of you every day and to hear it every day and be reminded every day. But metaphorically speaking, it's as if Jesus says to us every day, 13 and 14, here's two gates, two paths, two destinies. Which one are you on? And also says verse 15 and verse 21 and verse 24. Watch out for the false prophets. Take careful how you live. Be careful how you build your house today. Every day he puts that in front of us. Because we need to hear that. Choose this day whom you will serve. My way is narrow and hard-pressed and lonely, but I'm on it, and so you'll never walk alone. And it's hard, but I'll give you the grace that you need. Whatever it is that you need, just ask. It'll be there for you. I'll give you what you need to walk it out this day. It's hard, but you'll have it. You have what you need to walk it out. Follow me. Some who think themselves as followers of Jesus, maybe even use the name Christian, will will hear some of that. They'll come to understand all that it means to follow him. They'll come to understand maybe the, the true Christian gospel. They'll come to understand who God actually is the triune God, and that this is the Son, God in the flesh. They hear that and they'll say, that's not the Christianity I know. I'm out. Or meet some difficulty or some challenge in life and just, that's, that's not where I am. That's not the Jesus that I know. I'm out. And the turn away and walk the way of the world, which is so inviting, isn't it? Isn't it so inviting? Who, who among us can't resonate with the first half of Psalm 93 where the psalmist looks out at the world around him and says, man, the people of the world, they've got it going on. I mean, they, they, they've got plenty, they've got ease, they've got food and money and health, and they've got great parties, and they're having a great time. That's the beginning of Psalm 73. And who doesn't read that and say, like, yeah! You see, sometimes we talk in, in a way that's not exactly true, as if the Christian life is the only good life, and the non-Christian life is terrible. If you look around, there's a lot out there that's fun. There's a lot out there that's quite delightful. Why do so many people walk the wide way? That's beginning of Psalm 73. It is so inviting. It, it is so promising. This is, this is good. Here, come. We resonate with that. And Jesus is speaking. Yep. Read the rest of the psalm. Don't just look at the gates and the paths. Look at the ends. That's what turns in Psalm 73, right? And then I went into the temple. What he's saying there is, then I came in and I sat before God and I got a reality check. And I considered the end. A disciple, a true disciple, hears this from Jesus and says, that's pricey. And counts the cost 
and says, but what it gets is worth it. And in faith, takes another step forward along the path. In faith, takes a step forward. And why do I say that? In faith, not just in obedience, in faith. I'm referencing faith in future grace lingo from a few, from six, eight weeks ago. If you want to check out the sermon at the end of April or a couple weeks ago when I preached at the end of chapter six, touching this again, those of us who are here, think this through. In faith, God's promise about the future, Jesus' promise about the future is what moves me in faith to take a step forward. And on that point, look again at how Jesus describes the destinies. I've used the words heaven and hell to be clear what we're talking about here. But he uses more descriptive words, not, not titles. Destruction and life. We're not talking about locales. We're talking about impacts on you personally, what happens to you in that locale. I promise you, you find life there. I do not promise you that you will find all along the path a ton of money and great health and kids who are a certain way and parents who are a certain way and you get that job and you get that promotion and you get that scholarship and you'll start on the athletic team and everything will be great. I don't promise you any of that. I have a life ordained for you and I promise I will give you what you need for the life I have for you. I don't make you any promises about what you think you might want here. I promise you life forever there. Lift up your eyes and see. And I will walk with you and I'll give you what you need. I will be with you, with you, with you, with you here. But blessed are you, envied are you, not because of the stuff you have here or the size of your bank account here. Blessed are you because the kingdom is yours and you will be satisfied and you will see the face of God. That's where you need to look. I promise you. Why should I believe you? Look back. Who am I and how am I? I'm the God who became flesh and humbled myself to die on the cross to save you. Why would I screw you? I came to save you, to save you, to deliver you. I promise Trust me and come. And the Christian, the true disciple, hears that and says, pricey. And the only way there is life. Let's go. And takes another step forward with him on the hard and narrow way. No one does that perfectly, no Christian does that perfectly. We all still sin. We all still fail. Please hear that because I am 150% sure that somebody after church is going to ask me about this. So what I'm going to say after church is this right here. I'm going to point, at church, I'm going to point right back to this right here. 
when you fail. Somebody here is going to say, does that mean that I'm not a Christian, that I lost my salvation, that I wasn't a Christian ever all along? When you fail, ask yourself, do I know the true biblical gospel? Do I acknowledge it as true? And is my failure that I'm looking at right now grievous to me? The answer to all that is surely yes, that's why you asked me. Is it grievous to me? Yeah. Do I wish I was different? Uh-huh. Do I, do I want to grow? Do I want to become more like Jesus? Am I mourning over my sin and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and asking you help? Uh-huh. That's the Christian life. Of course you fell. This is a hard road, uphill, it's raining, there are loose rocks underfoot, you are going to slip, fall, bang your knee, you're going to hit your head on the on slot canyon. That's going to happen. Get up and walk on in faith. Not in strong willpower, in faith, believing. This is what it is. This is the walk. I fall and I get up. He picks me up like any father does with a kid who slipped. You pick him up and you say, let's go. And he press on. Walk. The Christian walk. It's hard. It's not natural. It's not the way of the world. It is narrow all the way to the summit. It's hard all along. Persecution comes. Struggle. Denial of self will be hard on self. You will feel the tension in the soul. They don't. You will feel the tension in the soul of, no. You feel family stress, perhaps, loss of friendship, perhaps, loss of public acclaim, perhaps. The way is hard. But it is to be embraced and believed and walked out. It is to be done, obeyed. Even when it's hard, you can't hear the Sermon on the Mount and say, that was genius by the greatest preacher there ever was. What's in chapter 8? Well, foreshadowing here, what's in chapter 8 is a whole bunch of stuff reinforcing the authority of Jesus. This wasn't put together by accident. A whole bunch of stuff showing the authority of Jesus to tell us what he just told us. Because we have to do it. Crying out for grace from God to move us. Crying out from grace. We can't do it ourselves. We need the grace of God. But we have to take a step forward believing and walk the road that leads to life. Jesus himself says so. He'll be there with us. He'll help us along the way. We must walk the path that leads to life, to heaven. The other path leads to hell. That's his exhortation. But there will be plenty of others who say otherwise. Which leads us to the second observation. Here's the second point. Watch out for the false prophets who reject the narrow way. Watch out for the false prophets who reject the narrow way. Verses 15 to 20 bring up a couple of different themes that we can find several other places in the Bible. 
John the Baptist in his ministry talked about this. Jesus in John 15, trees and fruit and how bad trees bear bad fruit and are cut down. So that's pretty familiar to us. And also the evaluation of false prophets, again, pretty familiar. Not too long ago, we preached through Jude and through 2 Peter that has a whole bunch about false prophets in it. So again, this whole paragraph, this stuff feels familiar to us. But as always, it's important to see it in its context right here at the end of the sermon, in the heart of this, of this warning here at the end. This is a warning about who we should listen to and who we should feed off of, which tree to eat from, if you will. Jesus just said, narrow and challenging way, don't walk the wide and easy way, and by its nature, that's a hard sell. Pricey. But he promises, this is the way you want to go. Next verse, beware the false prophets. What are they saying? What are they talking about? They're selling the wide way. That way over there, are you crazy? That is way, way too hard. Give me a break. There's a really nice road over here, and the God of love would want you to walk it because he's the God of love. I mean, the Bible says God is love. Travel over here with us. This is the easy way. It's full of the blessings of God, and the Bible says that God is the God who blesses us, right? This way. That's what they're going to say. And we're human beings. It sounds inviting. I know some people personally, and I've read of other people, this is, I'm sure you've encountered this too, it's plenty common. People who at one point or some other were in some way engaging with the narrow way and now are walking the wide way and their report to all of us is, this is so much better, I feel so much more natural. It's just right. There was so much stress and tension over there and now it's just like, ah. Well, first of all, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what Jesus said. But second of all, what does that prove? If you're in the middle of bench pressing 200 pounds, when you stop, it feels a lot easier. But that doesn't prove one way or the other if you should have been doing that weight. What are you thinking? They're not. This isn't about thinking in truth. It's about feeling. The false prophets are majoring in feeling. And they will look very persuasive saying it. They'll be in sheep's clothing. They'll look like us and they'll sound like us. They'll use our lingo. They'll reference our words. They'll be among us. Because, of course, no false prophet would survive very long looking completely non-Christian and teaching obvious complete heresy. That wouldn't work very long within the church. A false prophet resembles, can point to God is love in the Bible because he is. That's how it works. They're very skilled at looking and sounding like sheep or switching analogies. They're very skilled at appearing to bear good fruit, appearing to for a while. But keep watching. That's Jesus' point, right? Keep watching. 
If you keep looking, their way of life and their teaching will show itself for what it is. They are in sheep's clothing, but in fact they are ravenous wolves. They are in it for themselves, out to kill and eat the church. You. To feed themselves, to use the flock for self-serving, destructive purposes. Now, oftentimes, in a lot of other places, particularly in Jude, Second Peter, there's a, there's a very clear financial component to that, exploiting the church to feed themselves financially. But it doesn't have to be money. There are ways that people use other people for themselves that aren't about money. A big one, I, I think, in this, in this realm is I'm encouraged by my walk on the wide path if I can persuade you to agree with me. You know how that goes, right? If, if I say this ice cream is great and you say, you're right, it's awesome, then I feel better about my choice of ice cream. But if you say, like, that's terrible, it doesn't compare at all to this over here. Have you ever had Dairy Queen? It, I love Dairy Queen. <laughs> I, I, love, I love that. But honest. <laughs> but if you say, have you ever, then you feel like, well, am I wrong? You want to be affirmed. And so the more people that can come over with you, that is you using them to serve yourself, false prophet. There might not be any financial exchange at all. It might just be that I use you to encourage me in my wide path walking. That's the way the false prophet works. Watch. Watch, watch, watch. Keep watching. Twice, he says, verse 16 and verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruit, their teaching and their life. Watch their lives, watch your teaching. Do you see in it and do you hear in it? Poor in spirit, mourning over their own sin, meek, crying out to God to give righteousness, pure in heart towards others, merciful and peacemaking, even when it costs them. That's the key part. Even when it costs them. Even when it costs them everything. Watch. Is that the fruit that's growing on them? Is that what they're teaching and inclining others towards? Hungering and thirsting for themselves. False prophets will encourage the wide and easy path of destruction on purpose. Contrary to what Jesus teaches Maybe they'll twist the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe make it, this is a clever one, maybe make it as if this is what we do to be pleasing to God. So do it. Skipping the, you can't cry out to God to give you the grace. Skipping that part. Turning this into just straight up law, just straight up works righteousness. Watch that. Or perhaps they'll make it to be good guidance for us, like the golden rule. Good advice to do. Watch that. Maybe they'll just set it aside and chuck it completely and so that God is universally loving of all things. Legalism. Here's the law we obey, and that's what makes us right with God makes us worthy of him. Or licentious permissiveness, whatever you want to do as long as you're kind. Two wide ditches on both sides of the narrow way that leads to life. 
Jesus wants to be extremely clear. Watch. Hear me. Believe me. Trust me. Walk with me. This is the path that leads to life. It's narrow. It's humbling. It's breaking you. It's leading to dependence on Christ. It's hard. He'll give you help, but that's the path we walk. Let me pray. Lord, would you help us, help us to hear and to respond to you in faith, believing that you have the words of life. You were kind to point out to that, point that out to us that life, not just being right, but life is the goal. Thank you. Give us faith to see it and believe it. Give us the strength we need to walk it. Give us the renewal of heart and mind to be made different. Thank you, Lord. We trust ourselves to you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.